Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. On this episode, James Smith from Global Sports Concepts is back. James rejoins me for his monthly interview on the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. And on this episode, James discusses the topic of critical thinking guys this was another amazing episode with james and i hope you really really enjoyed okay james smith as always it is an absolute pleasure and an absolute honor to have you come onto my podcast and it's, as as i said uh, just before we come on it's great to see your beard too the listeners won't be able to see that but james is rocking a very very uh paleolithic prehistoric uh manly beard that screams don't mess with me so we're not we're not going to mess around here at all. We're going to get straight into today's topic. So uh, just for the listeners, who we're, we're hopefully trying to get James on at least once a month or every six weeks or so to really uh, get into a topic in depth. So the topic for this podcast uh, is going to be critical thinking, and that's where James wanted to go with this one. Uh, the topic on our last podcast had been the concept of mental preparation, uh, which got a lot of great feedback from a lot of people. On my end, anyway, people saying they found a, an extremely intriguing podcast. But James, first off, what's new with you? Uh, maybe just give us a little bit of updates to you uh, for the first few minutes, and then let's get into this topic of critical thinking, which I'm really looking forward to getting into. Thank you for having me on again, Robbie. Looking forward to the discussion. In terms of professional status on my end, as we in, discussed briefly offline, I have a handful of consulting projects. Effectively, everything is some version of consulting, which is what I enjoy doing most. Mm. And that includes the psychological consulting, which we discussed last time, in in addition to other strategic elements of the consulting that in, in some way or another is manifest as some form of one of those facets of the governing dynamics that I explain in my book. So whether the consulting pertains to cultural leadership elements, analytical and intellectual advance, which we'll be discussing here, the the psychological realm, the technical, tactical, sensory motor realm, and onwards, and the freedom of operation that I'm afforded as a full-time consultant affords me really more than anything else the time that most of the professionals do not have to research a broad spectrum of domains and thusly be able to assimilate the knowledge and convey it in consulting format. And that's something that I enjoy doing very much. So that's the short of it. Great stuff. Great stuff. And again, we'll uh, always in the show notes, we're going to link up to everything in terms of your website and your services and all that in terms of your consultants. And so people can check that out for sure. So, James, critical thinking is something I know you uh, you have a deep uh, respect for. Uh, a deep study, uh, uh, you, you've deeply studied this. You research it. It's almost a, a daily ritual to 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 deeply look into like the human condition and the idea of trying to understand reality and how best to, I suppose, digest, assimilate, and and then. Um, Suggest so assimilate information and then and then come to some conclusions and, and how that can enhance human performance in all domains, not just in sport but in life. I know you're very uh, influenced by David Deutsch and a lot of his material. So, 
let's get into this uh, critical thinking. To you, like, what is critical thinking, and why is it so important for us as a species to develop our critical thinking skills? For me, the concept is best encapsulated by the philosophy of epistemology, mm. which studies the knowledge and the growth of knowledge and ultimately demonstrates how we distinguish justified beliefs from opinions, which I think is essential to point out because when we consider the broad spectrum of information accessibility, such as the Internet, in my judgment, one of the most pertinent questions is, how does one determine whether someone else knows what they're talking about or not? And as we've discussed previously, and as I mentioned in the book and elsewhere, there was extraordinarily negative implications of the empiricist scientific movement of the late 17th, early 18th centuries. And one part of that that is still very much alive and well is the emergent qualities of, false though they are, of experiential authority. And I state false though it is, clearly this is not wholesale understood amongst the greater population, which is why, whether it's a job description and the clear importance that is placed on years of experience in fill-in-the-blank subject matter, or credentials after an individual's name that falsely imply a set of knowledge mm. to an onlooker uh, in addition to simple associative properties of experience that one is able to observe in another simply as a result of their biography. So if, if it's in sport, the, the simple association of some coach and some amount of success of a team or if it's an individual sport of, of athletes falsely implies to onlookers that the level of that individual's knowledge is commensurate with the associative level of success. Yeah. And this is a deeply complicated subject matter as it's multifactorial I've indicated in one or another resources how as soon as some endeavor involves more than one individual, for example, we have to scrutinize very closely even the concept of assigning the word best, for example, to this person's level of achievement yes. because, because as soon as one other individual enters the equation, immediately there is a dispersion of contribution and thus it thusly renders the, the, the assignment of best erroneous 
because we cannot attribute the outcome to one individual. So I come back to how might people equip themselves with the ability to objectively, not subjectively, prejudicially, or based upon intrinsic biases or presuppositions, but objectively determine who knows what they're talking about and why. Who's competent? Who's incompetent? Where do they lie on that spectrum? And invariably, the answer is knowledge. And epistemology provides us with the insights to understand the nature of knowledge and how is it created. And it depends upon conjectures and criticisms and error corrections, etc. So I'll reiterate something we've touched on earlier because it is intrinsic to this concept of who objectively knows what they're talking about. And it's rooted in explanatory knowledge. So, of course, I'll credit David Deutsch with a good explanation is one that is hard to vary while still explaining what it purports to explain. And the more profound an explanation is or the more fundamental it is, the more deeply implicated it is in many others. So I recently posted a lecture on my own site that has to do with some of this where so I'll give you I'll give you some examples of some of the most profound explanations in the way that they're implicated in many others. So in physics we have the the explanation and the theory of gravity which in and of itself is deeply complex and and to paraphrase to paraphrase revolves around curvatures of space-time and the greater the mass, the more significant the curvature of space-time and the stronger the gravitational field in and of itself is a deeply complex as is described by Einstein's theory of general relativity explanation that was in an an utter reformatting of what Newton's explanation was and it is implicated in an enormous amount of other significant explanations. For example, the calculating the trajectory of an implement, a thrown implement, a ballistic implement, utterly depends upon accounting for the acceleration as a product of gravity. Calculating the orbital velocity of satellites included in that calculation is the gravitational field, the path of rockets, the buoyancy of ships at sea, the construction of bridges and the engineering. All of this cannot be done successfully without accounting for the acceleration as a result of gravity. Mm -hmm. And we go from one, so for example, in my consulting, psychologically, Let's take the theory of cognitive behavior, behavioral therapy as a psychotherapeutic approach that conveniently, according to our subject matter here, is deeply entrenched in explanation as a form of reasoning in order to overcome various aspects of anxiety disorders and depression, etc. And the implications of this non-pharmacological approach to therapy, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, is implicated in the explanation 
of many other forms of, for instance, anxiety, anxiety disorders that are described in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. On and on we go, bioenergetically, the lactic conditions build and what is occurring physiologically it is the increased intensity beyond the steady state challenging mitochondrial respiration the result is increased proton production intracellular increasing acidosis and that is the reason that we feel a burning sensation viscerally in our muscles when we enter these high levels of acidosis, not because lactic acid is accumulating, but because of this increased proton production intracellularly. Where is that implicated? And any conceivable explanation of increasing acidosis in any variety of sporting, athletic, militaristic endeavors. So on and on and on, we are able to recognize a rather recognize the significance of profound explanation and the more profound it is or the more fundamental it is in that context the more deeply implicated it is in many others and this is intrinsic to the concept of advancing critical thinking because if we are to discuss what it means to advance one's capacity to think more critically, clearly we must advance this individual's knowledge quite literally as it relates to thinking. I've mentioned the, 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 the tragedy of the, the, the loss of the, the classical education pieces of the trivium and the quadrivium and how they, as an example, serve as an quite literally a, a roadmap to advance critical thinking, for example, with the trivium existing from, of grammar, logic, and rhetoric, very quite fundamental. Grammar, the mechanics of language, logic, the mechanics of thought, and rhetoric, the use of language to persuade effectively. So concepts such as logic, reason, perspective, knowledge, understanding, explanation, all contained within the philosophical realm of epistemology and in my judgment, utterly essential to advance critical thinking capacity. And this brings me to a criticism that I have. And of course, there's nothing novel about this Amidst the, 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 the broader sense in terms of characterizing populations, a, effectively a thought experiment that I've been contemplating for some time now is the polarization that has existed, I would argue, perhaps all time, maybe more poignantly post-enlightenment, in which case, amidst the broader populace, we see a, well, quite literally, 
controversially though they may be, you can look up various reputable sources that track intelligent quotient over time. And what they demonstrate over time, for example, taking the United States, is a decrease in IQ points following the 1950s. So this is a quite literal example, if you accept the statistical validity, of a decrease in the broad sense in intelligence. I mentioned the polarization and how the masses are often criticizable for a diminished sense of intelligence and overall knowledge and awareness, thereby rendering the higher levels of these capacities to minorities. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, this is intuitively recognized, meaning the, the most brilliant scientists, as an example, you know, tucked away with their disheveled hair and their lack of organization in their office, working on equations, occupying this very small percentage of intellect, leaving the masses to go about their, you know, mundane existence, uh, ignorance is bliss, etc. And and if we, there is a stereotypical accuracy to this, and, and we even are able to provide an objective analysis to the aesthetics. So, for example, music and what level of you know, technical, artistic, facility mastery there exists in comparison, say, popular music domains with jazz and classical domains. And what we may objectively characterize, particularly with the advent of video, you know, music television, etc., is that popular music notoriety and success as defined by income is in no way proportional to talent. And where talent exists in extraordinary high concentrations is often the unknown minorities of these subcultures of, I mentioned jazz and classical. Mm. So where you have, where you have objectively some of the most skillful and talented musicians, just given this example that I'm making, many of whom no one has ever heard of. Meanwhile, the musicians that the whole world has heard of could arguably, because I'm not naming anyone specific, could arguably, and on a basis of comparison, be almost incompetent in terms of musical talent, but due to marketing and image and technological advancements in production and engineering soundboards can simply take an image and someone else's songwriting and other musicians playing the music and render someone who's incredibly popular. So I've been contemplating this. I mentioned the polarization where we could talk about any particular, for example, I utilize in the governing dynamics of coaching, I utilize an example of astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who I'm sure most of the modern world is familiar with due to his popularity. When we look at that, however, and we simply analyze the, the mode of, of Professor Tyson's popularity, we, we can 
interestingly enough, see a similar trend in that the reason he is so popular is because he is so far removed from research. For how many years now, he's been essentially a celebrity physicist separate from the grind of cutting-edge research. Meanwhile, others, for example, David Deutsch, who is nowhere near as globally popular as Neil deGrasse Tyson, yet what do, what do we, how, how do we compare the two, despite the fact that they're different types of physicists? That Professor Deutsch is daily deeply entrenched in research, and while he has a public voice as a result of his books and TED Talks, etc., he is nowhere near on the, the forefront of public consciousness due to the fact that he's entrenched in research. And this is an example of how we see these polarities occurring in any variety of domains. And I've, I've been contemplating a possible resolution to this, meaning are we forever restricted to the general public, n not only not being as knowledgeable, as knowledgeable, but in many ways disinterested in becoming more knowledgeable. Are, is this is this a uh, is this a life sentence? Is this a per, perpetual reality of the broader sense? And I, I think the answer is no. Even though the trend seems to be getting worse. Because I, I'll hearken back to, I mentioned earlier, the classical education. There used to be a much closer connection, for example, I'll use science as an example, between the scientific community and the greater populace. Meaning, the, the connection and the knowledge of the average pedestrian between that type of individual and the actual people doing the science was much closer because there was a much greater prevalence, for example, in Europe of public lectures gaining the interest of the greater population. And interestingly enough, the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physicists, directed by Neil Turok, who's also been an individual deeply impactful and influential on my own work, has brought this to, has brought this to bear, where the Perimeter offers a and has long since offered for a number of years now a public lecture series for the, to answer the, the very question and to solve the problem, which I just mentioned, this, this, this disparity that has grown over time since the Enlightenment between what is occurring in the scientific community and the general knowledge and awareness of this in the public. So because it existed more so in ages past, it gives one reason to be optimistic that it, it might possibly exist again, despite the fact, again, whether or not one agrees with the statistical relevance of these declining intelligence quotients over time, despite the fact that this trend seems to be occurring, there still can be reason to be optimistic if for no other reason than we acknowledge that it once existed and therefore can again, again, in, in terms of raising the general level of knowledge and awareness of the greater population, not 
continuing to restrict it and narrow it to smaller concentrations of the intellectual minority. So just a few things off that, maybe just to summarize um, for the listeners. We've heard you say this before, now I'm paraphrasing, but basically experience doesn't equal expert, and that's something that we're trying to um, bring to the forefront here for the listeners in that, like, so this coach, such and such, 30 years in the field, it's like, and automatically, just because he's 30 years in the field, it seems to have given this person, him or her, not just obviously limited males, but it gives this individual uh, this sort of false sense of knowledge or mastery or that they are an expert. And again, going back to this phrase of experience as an equal expert. And I just want to say that the music analogy, very, very good, very good in terms of, okay, you have your pop culture and because these sort of boy band, girl bands, and listen, I'm not saying that no, no, that some of them don't have talent, but there, there's people in the music industry who are far more well known to the populace just because of the prevalence of their, their fame being put out there on social media and TV and whatnot. Um, but yet there's far more skilled musicians all over the world in terms of vocal capabilities or playing a musical instrument that no one knows about. Uh, and it's the same then in coaching. If we, if we relate that analogy back to coaching, and you said something around and I, and I was nodding away because I always say this, when people say, oh, he's one of the best coaches in the world or he is the best coach in the world, and I'm like, you cannot say that. That is like the most subjective, like, no, we don't know who the best coach in the world is. And it's just like, he might be one of the most known in the world, going back to like someone who's a, a pop singer. They might be the most known pop singer in the world. doesn't mean they're the best singer in the world, though. Or they could be the most known violinist in the world. doesn't mean they're the best, though. The best violinist could be someone in the back arse of nowhere in the world. We just never heard of them. Same with coaching, too. Probably the best coach out there is someone we never even heard of. So I love the music analogy that you use in terms of how we could also reference that back to coaching. And then your analogy, too, of Neil deGrasse Tyson versus David Deutsch in terms of, you know, using that as also an analogy. Um, and then just, I suppose the next question is, you, you kind of touched on a bit, is, well, what is a potential solution to this? Because also, James, and you kind of touched on this too, is that some people are just uncomfortable when it comes to thinking, as in, like, when they have to like, critically think. Because thinking is hard. I spoke to Pat Davidson one time, and he was deeply looking into the brain and the uh, you know the neurology of the brain and you know being into neuroscience and he said that he'd read a lot of research that said actual deep critical thinking to some people's brains is a threat like it's so hard for their brains that it's a threat response and they just procrastinate procrastination is kind of like running away from the line if you like so like a lot of people when you like really get them if you really want to like get deep into people and they just kind of like give you those, oh, I, I don't know, or that's the way it's always been. They give you those like shrug off answers because they don't want to get to a deep level thing because it's nearly too hard. It's almost too much of a threat. So it's kind of like what sort of resolutions can we do to get people to higher levels or higher orders of thinking? And just, just before you answer that, um, just you mentioned Neil Turlock. Just another thing too is Robert Sapolsky in Fair Play to put out his whole lecture series as well for the public. So... I definitely think doing things like that, letting people have more access to those levels of education for free, it's on YouTube, is definitely one part maybe of the solution. But you said you've contemplated like maybe how can we get people to be more comfortable at higher levels of thinking? 
Well, you 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 reference a few things there. For for example, the 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 work of evolutionary biologist Sapolsky. If we're going to talk about an individual's capacity for critical thinking, which is linked to psychobehavioral attributes, we invariably have to discuss neural biology mm. and what scientists such as Sapolsky and others have clearly elucidated upon is this subject matter domain cannot be intelligently discussed without acknowledging, for example, genetic ancestry, third trimester implications on the mother yes, and the pro profound implications on the psychological development of the offspring as a result of those yeah. third trimester implications, the phenotypic implications yeah. postnatal, all of which are intrinsic to psychobehavioral outcomes and epigenetic factors. That's correct. And, and the, the, the very reality of neuroplastic changes that are achievable throughout the course of a lifetime. So whereas Sapolsky and others have identified that the frontal cortex effectively develops at the age of 25 in males and females, this is, there are deep implications for explaining the behavior of individuals because we're talking about the formalization of higher functioning executive processing of thoughts not being concrete until the a young adult, 25 years old, beyond which, however, neuroplastic adaptability is achievable over the course of a, of a lifetime, hence the non-pharmacological effectiveness of psychotherapeutic approaches such as cognitive behavioral therapy in all of its permutations. So all of this must be discussed and contemplated when answering this question. So just because there may be intrinsic limitations resultant of genetic ancestry and a mother who was poorly psychologically prepared and had extraordinary stress responses to environmental factors and therefore impacted the genetic outcome of the youth coupled with poor parenting skills in early childhood and an absence of nurturing and on and on and on, that can certainly render one being dealt with the colloquial bad hand in life. However, no one, even those dealing with pathologies, uh, is beyond refor reformation. When, when one coalesces the semblance of psychotherapy and pharmacology and other biological, psychobiological forms of intervention, that the research has shown and proven to be effective to one degree or another based upon the pathology or disorder. No one is beyond saving, let's say. And so despite the fact that IQ tends to be largely unchanging and genetically influenced, this is not to say that there's no hope for individuals of a lower intelligence quotient 
even specifically regarding the concept of critical thinking. We're, we're not broadening it, broadening it out to life experience, but even in the narrow context of critical thinking, we can make an analogy to any other endeavor in which one seeks to improve, which is to say, no matter how non-genetically predisposed one is, for example, to be successful in the 100-meter sprint event in track and field, we also know that anyone, regardless of their absence of talent genetically for that event is capable of becoming faster. Very good. And we can apply that same thinking to any conceivable endeavor, in this case the intellectual one. As I have indicated in my consulting experience with a variety of different types of leadership in and out of sport, it is a rare exception, in which case I've thought to myself as I walked away, that this individual is simply not smart enough and lacks the capacity to understand. That's a rare exception, much more commonplace, unfortunately, yet still cause to be optimistic, is that people simply lack knowledge, in which case there's a grand distinction between intellect and knowledge because knowledge may be acquired both in the relative sense as well as in the creation sense as a result of conjecture and criticism and is not entirely restrained by intellectual constraints. Thus, to answer the question, how do we, how do we bridge the gap? How do, how do we encourage? Well, the interesting thing is that th th there's... There's been individuals who have crossed barriers, which is to say, we can pick any of these domains <clears throat> excuse me, that we mentioned, the aesthetics, for example. We see polarities. We see polarities in any domain regarding the, say, super talented versus super popular. Rarely do the twain coexist. However, they sometimes do. So, for example, in, in music, the whole modern, the planet who has access to a, a television or the Internet is aware of Lady Gaga. And it just so happens to be that objectively Lady Gaga is a genius in every sense of the word, musically, remarkably talented conceptually as an actual singer, piano player, deeply, deeply knowledgeable. And perhaps there's no one more popular in the modern era. These individuals exist. They've always exist in any conceivable discipline. It's that they in and of themselves are in an extreme minority of incredibly talented and popular, what they share in common, whether it's the physicist, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson or Lady Gaga or any number of individuals who are deeply knowledgeable as well as 
incredibly popular on the mass scales, the, the phenomenon they share in common is that what they're doing that renders their popularity on the enormous scales invariably revolves around accessibility and simplification. The, the reason why, for example, Lady Gaga and her extraordinary musical talents and knowledge is made so popular is due to the accessibility because all she has to do is put together an accessible beat and a rhythmic quality to her vocals and everyone can get up and dance to it. And similarly, Professor Tyson with his deep academic background with degrees from Princeton and Harvard and so on has to a substantial extent simplified complicated astrophysical realities in such a way that children and parochial thinkers can easily assimilate the concepts and the communability of them because they're so simplified and difficult to screw up. But the distinction that must be made in any given example, whether it's the accessibility of, say, some simplified musical output of Lady Gaga, not taking anything away from her brilliance, or some grossly simplified physics explanation of Professor Tyson or, or any other individuals. I just I choose those two because they come from drastically different fields. The distinction must be made between what is conveyed due to its accessibility versus the implications on learning. And the, and the distinction is massive. The, of course, the implication, the explanation that I provide in my book prefers, refers to Professor Tyson, in which case, just because the information is simplified and accessible does not mean that it is efficacious at all in advancing one's understanding of astrophysics. Similarly, just because the whole world might be inspired to get up and dance as soon as Lady Gaga sings a musical phrase does not mean that any of the listeners have a deeper understanding of music theory. Now, I raise that distinction because we must scrutinize the intentions. So it, there's a difference between I'm just looking to be entertained mm. and I'm looking to become more knowledgeable. So what I would criticize the masses for as it regards intellectual pursuits is the false satisfaction with simply being entertained versus becoming more knowledgeable. And to that end, I must criticize what I've seen on social media relatively recently, which is a celebration of simplicity. Because of the explanation that I just gave, it's one thing to reduce something down so basically and simplified that it's easily commutable and easily assimilated by any particular listener. 
However, there's an extraordinary difference between that and the listener or the reader becoming more knowledgeable. So I criticize individuals who are on the sole endeavor to seek simplicity because that, that distinction must be made. For example, just because Einstein's groundbreaking theory of energy equals mass times the speed of light squared is incredibly compact and when it's written out, you know, it, it, it takes up a, a few centimeters of space on a page. And that tends to be the endeavor of many unifying theories in physics, the, the exquisite beauty of a simplified, compact, clean equation. What must be distinguished is the fact that there is an aesthetic beauty to this simplified presentation of information and on the other end of that, the extraordinary complexities that go into the types of thinking that amounted to the conclusion that we see in simplified form. So what I'm making a point here to distinguish between is earlier I explained the, 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 these fundamental theories and the profound explanations, how they're implicated in many others. So to utilize gravity as, as an example, there is an extraordinary depth and complexity to the theory of it that involves the curvature of space-time. However, on the other end of the spectrum, we can also say, well, gravity is the reason why a ball drops when you release it out of your hand. Mm-hmm. Now, that might entertain a child and any other simple thinker or group of individuals who are not looking for anything deeper. However, when the opportunity exists to inform and to advance knowledge, certainly the discussion of gravity cannot end with, well, it's the reason why something drops when you let it go. That's, that won't do. And again, I come back to, let's be clear. If somebody, if somebody is simply looking for a one-liner for whatever reason, then that's sufficient. Let us, however, make a distinction between that and the opportunity to inform. I myself, to this day, have been harshly criticized in the public format, in terms of the masses, for my mode of explanation. And I attribute this towards many of the issues that we've touched on just during this brief discussion mm -hmm. and what distinguishes the psychology, in a sense, of the masses apart from those in minority populations. And it's unfortunate because the greater that this distinction exists between, for example, the current minority of individuals who are deeply fascinated by critical thinking and how to advance it due to its implications on problem solving and the much greater, in terms of numbers, population who is not, is a problem because no one in any endeavor is beyond improving their ability to critically think and thereby offer a higher utility function in what Ever they do. So no matter the where on the spectrum of intellectual rigor an individual's profession exists, 
there's no place on that spectrum where an individual would not be well served by advancing their critical thinking capacity. So on one end of the spectrum, we could think of the most remedial manual labor, digging trenches on the side of the road. And on the other end of that, we could consider some theoretical realm of mathematics or physics or neurosurgery, etc. And it, it matters not, or anywhere in between on that broad spectrum, it matters not where an individual's interests lie or professions lie on that spectrum. Everyone is equally well served by advancing critical thinking capacity as it relates to problem solving, no matter how simple or complex. And ultimately, we must revert back to what we can know about the advancement and creation of knowledge, which stems from the philosophical pursuit of epistemology. So a few things to follow up there on that. So what about the concept that if you can't explain it simply enough, you don't know it well enough then? And the reason why I say that as well is because even if you read a statistics textbook, and I know all about statistics textbooks after my first year of my master's, <laughs> I had to really delve into those. But uh, one of the key things we talk about is that, okay, you've crunched the numbers, you've done all that, the, 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 the background work, like, you know, you're like that scientist in the background that no one sees. It's like at the Apple products, you know, that, that, that joke that uh, Bill Burr had about uh, Steve Jobs. He's like, He's like, what the fuck does Steve Jobs do? He told people what to invent. All these like genius scientists in the background, and all we saw Steve Jobs. But right. uh, but in terms then, like so again, go back to this. If you don't know it well enough, or if you can't explain it simply, you probably don't know well enough. And then the idea of that with statistics, like in the textbooks, they all talk about how how it's very crucial to be able to present your data very simply. So like when you're presenting like your GPS data to a sports coach who's no idea about the analytics of that, um. Like, how would you maybe go about answering uh, answering that type of thought process? We must distinguish, as I said earlier, between the intent of the individual conveying the information. So, for example, if the objective is simply to demonstrate how concise one can be with as you indicated, offering an explanation of some complicated subject matter, that must be distinguished from teaching an individual information and facilitating learning. So, for example, again, I'll use the example. There is nothing incorrect about me saying, here's all you need to know about gravity. It's the reason why things drop when you release them. But it doesn't, there, incre it doesn't increase your depth of knowledge of what actually is going on. Precisely. So if, 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 if on this podcast, if, if what it means to be more well-received by the masses, that we just go back and forth with simple one-liners that encapsulate complex principles into you know, one or two sentence simplifications. A, 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 Twitter, a Twitter feed. Precisely. So that's, that's one thing, but the question is, how much more knowledgeable is the listener yeah. as a result? And this, this is where my criticism lies. The, uh, for example, I, Mark Bell is a friend of mine, 
And we probably could not be more polar opposite in terms of our psycho-behavioral intellectual characteristics. We, however, we're close friends. And, and Mark is extraordinarily popular by, by measure of, well, his financial success, the number of people who subscribe to his social media outlets, et cetera. And Mark was kind enough to have me on his podcast, which received more views than anything I've ever done on my own, of course, solely because of Mark's name being on it. And anyone who is either a critic of me or wants to have a few laughs, I would encourage them to look at the comments that I received on Mark's YouTube page because I'm effectively torn apart by the bulk of his readers being criticized for how I speak, being criticized for overcomplicating, being criticized for being pretentious, and on and on and on. And I, aside from deriving humor from that myself, because if something is, is, is cleverly written, you have to appreciate it regardless of whether it's a criticism or not, I began to, <laughs> I began to think about this because in, in my own experience, that type, I've received that type of criticism from the very beginning, ever since I had some type of platform on the internet. And I've, I've thought, I've thought more closely about it as to, it's interesting why this is the case, why in, in, in a sense, the broad population would render so much more resistance and criticism versus the minority populations who are very receptive. And it's for the exact same reasons as what we discussed earlier, whether it's music or science or anyone else, where this typical polarity exists with a few individuals who cross barriers, yet ultimately and unfortunately are constrained by simplification in order to reach broader populations, no matter how knowledgeable they are otherwise. And so again, we'll, we, we must continue to circle back towards, on the one hand, we have the irrefutable recognition of the implications of epistemology and the implications of knowledge and the understanding that knowledge can only be created one way and one way only, and that is through conjecture and criticism there is no knowledge creation as a result mm. of experience. And in, in my judgment, it is actually this type of teaching and the, the act of conveying knowledge in a relative sense, because this is nothing new to listeners, uh, this is the answer to how can each individual do their part who cares about this to effectively raise the level of knowledge of the collective, it's through explaining things in such a way, good explanations that are hard to vary while explaining what they purport to explain, that serve to uncover, in this case, many of these myths. Because I use the empiricism as, a, as an example, and it is my opinion that the falsity of empiricism is one of the main culprits that has rendered this problem, has, has rendered this 
polarity between facets of the population that are extremely knowledgeable and those who are not, apart from genetic factors and third trimester implications and epigenetic and phenotypic influences, we simply have to examine the cultural implications, which of course are specific to epigenetic and phenotypic influence. As David Deutsch and others have explained, and as I indicated in the governing dynamics, all of this emerges from cultural implications, knowledge included. Culture is the bedrock from which all intellectual and otherwise pursuits have the capacity to evolve and progress. And therefore, we must ask ask ourselves, to what extent can any one of us impact cultural reformation and in the context of what we've been discussing here to the extent that the broader population as a whole takes a greater interest in knowledge and the only means, the singular means in which it may be created. Just something that came into my mind there when you were explaining the, or when you when you touched on like you know saying that talking about gravity that if you you know if you throw something out, it throws something and comes back down. It, it reminded me of another uh, joke of Louis C.K. where he has this famous joke about his daughter, and this goes back to when we're kids. Because what's come to my head is that when we're kids, we're curious, we're open to being educated. You know, as young kids, we want to know. And it's almost as if like that gets beaten out of us as we as we get older, whether through the school system, and then obviously we get bombarded by all that external stimuli, like kids nowadays, like you know obviously the television and uh, everything, with iPhones and iPods, it's like just too much stimulation for a young brain. And that kind of curiosity just almost gets like dampened down, and then just eventually just it's just again it's suddenly beaten out of the system. But he has this joke where. He says he's sitting with his daughter and it's inside and it's, it's raining very heavy outside and the daughter goes, Daddy, let's go outside and play. And he's like, we can't. And she's like, why? Because it's raining. And she goes, why is it rain? He goes, clouds make it rain. And then she's like, why? And he goes, like, I don't know, condensation and it goes up and the clouds come together and it rains. And she goes, but why? And she goes, Daddy doesn't know anymore. And she's like, why? Because Daddy didn't listen in school. And it just goes on and on like, why do you listen to school? Because Daddy's like, I hated school. And why? Because I because I was high all the time on drugs. I was like, why <laughs> why are you high on drugs? Because I, I hated my life and life wasn't good with me and your grandma and grandpa. We didn't get on and it goes on and on and on. Yes. So you know, so it, it's it just made me think of that. You know, when you're kind of saying that there's hope for everyone, like I'm I'm really kind of going right back to like like when we were kids, we were we were really more we were really more closer in terms of a level playing field because as kids we were all curious as, as fuck basically like we always wanted, right. we always wanted to know well why tell me why and it's funny that like where does that curiosity go as we get older you know like uh, and obviously it doesn't leave some of us um but another thing I just want to uh, ask for you to or for you just maybe just touch on again is we've spoken about this minority versus the majority. And, you know, you said since the 1950s, the IQ level has gone down or, you know, statistically proved to believe or trust those statistics. But, and, and I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be one to, to use this as an argument to say that this is just fact, but nearly throughout all human history till date, uh, the minority has always kind of led the majority. So, like, do, do you see that change in, in, in any way? 
It's an it's a compelling philosophical question, and I'm not sure that I've reached a conclusion on that one. Uh, certainly, but just for, it, just for you go on and, and like what comes straight into my mind is like Oppenheimer and like the atomic bomb. Like, again, right. there, there, there's like a few guys, top you know uh, physicists in the world. And like the majority world, not having a clue what my, 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 my Manhattan Project is going on, and like, do you know what I mean? That kind of comes to my mind. There is certainly at that time that was pre-internet, and for no other reason that was one of the, despite the veil of secrecy that was being imparted due to the nature of the subject matter, that was probably more than anything else the reason for the the lack of broad understanding amidst the whole physics community. Interestingly, too, to that point was the the extraordinary advancements scientifically that occurred, particularly around the turn of the 20th century. There, there was so many of them, in which case you had certain critics, for example, within the physics community saying, you know, that's 50 years away, that's 100 years away. And then meanwhile, six months later, the experimental results are verified. And there's an interesting interplay between theory and experiment in, in physics where theorists have predicted X, Y, and Z, and due to, for example, technological constraints at any given time, experimentalists, depending whether they're more optimistic or pessimistic, might summarily rule out, if they're pessimistic, the reality of a certain theoretical prediction only to realize due to the exponential rate of technological advance that it's going to be verified a year later. So yeah. that, that so that's been interesting to observe. It just figure on there. It's funny you say that because I, I can't think of the gentleman's name, but it was Tony Robbins speaking about this gentleman and it was to do with the genome, uh, the, the, the human genome project. And yes. like he, he had said, I can't remember who it was at the time, but he had said at the time, like that started in 1990 and he's like, we'll get this done in like 10 years or it'll be mapped up by their 2000s. And like, it was like the late nineties and they had, they had like only a fraction of it done. And, and they were all like, you're wrong. So he told you it wouldn't happen. And he says, there's still a little bit of time left. And he says, we'll do it. Cause he, he, he had understood this idea of like, it's almost like compounding interest in economics is that yeah. once like a little bit of a breakthrough comes, it just goes boom. And you get this like exponential growth. And like, we've seen that with technology, obviously, like, I mean, look at the iPhone, for Christ's sake. You go back to like, even 10 years ago. If you brought this back now to 2000, no, maybe not 2007, maybe you went back to the year 2000, 17 years ago, you brought this back to the year 2000, people are like, oh, my God, look at this. And now people look, this is iPhone 4. I have, I'm waving at James here. People look at the iPhone 4 now, and they're like, that piece of shit, that's fucking out of date now. So you're referring to Ray Kurzweil. That's who it who, is. Yeah, Ray Kurzweil, yeah. Yeah, so he, 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 he explained the difference between linear and exponential thinking, and he used the genome project as an example. When you think exponentially, you, you begin to conceptualize whatever it is, the, the subject matter that is in context on a whole different scale, because you have to account for doublings of information as opposed to the linear progress, which unfortunately most individuals whether it's genetics or cultural educational influences, naturally think linearly, mm. not exponentially. And ultimately the difference between those who embrace the concept of exponential thinking and their less ambitious counterparts is what explains the difference in intellectual achievements from either, from either end. The, what was it 
that the creativity that you mentioned that is basically intrinsic to childhood and then it's a question of what degree of that is sustained throughout the course of life and how much of it is constrained as a result of a variety of multifactorial processes it is it is hopeful to see it preserved for instance in the science technology engineering mathematics aesthetics in which case many of the professions intuitively or not feature the intrinsic necessity to encourage creativity mm. and along with that of course is the prerequisite of being curious as to how to advance these processes the it, it, it let's put it this way creativity is one of the main attributes attributes that makes us human in so far as the ability to think abstractly mm. con- conjoined with the capacity to self reflect yeah uh, apart from this we begin to downgrade intellectual capacities as you look through the entire animal kingdom in terms of the hierarchy of intelligence and because if for no other reason then we have the capacity for it now granted this is philosophical it seems to me that there should be an imperative to further it now that's a subjective thing because mm. professions depending upon the profession do not necessitate it ironically as i stated earlier all professions benefit from advancing very few necessitate it now interestingly enough i've had posted on my website for some time now a polish military study revealed an exception to what i've just stated which is that they the endeavor of this militaristic study was to identify what level of intellect was associated with the optimal type of soldier and what they discovered and i don't recall the exact metrics was that the optimal soldier is an individual of moderate intellect not high intellect and of course for obvious reasons not low intellect in fact every military branch has a cutoff in terms of what intelligence quotient or other metric of assessing cognitive ability is acceptable to even be a candidate for the work the reason why this study showed that the optimal soldier is of a moderate level of intelligence is because as intellect increases so does intuitively the propensity to question and it's not hard to understand why in military and other authoritarian structures the powers that be are not seeking per- perpetual question yeah the questioning of authority from their subordinates now therein lies a deep ethical discussion 
as to the premise for such an existence. However, it is unquestionable to recognize in any, you know, this is a military example, any variety of vertical hierarchical domains, there is the impetus for the leadership to prohibit the questioning of authority. And one way of achieving that is by limiting the candidacy for these mid-level positions to individuals who are not in possession of an intellect that would render them intrinsically questioning of authority. It's an interesting discussion and, and certainly a controversial one in terms of the efficacy of such a notion. However, there is no way for an individual to skirt the issue that this absolutely exists. Interestingly enough, the entities at the forefront of progress represent the antithesis of this notion, in which case the very opposite is true, in which case open-ended knowledge creation is at the forefront of organizational culture and everyone that is part of a more flat hierarchy is encouraged to explore the utter boundaries of their capacity to think creatively and rightfully so because there is arguably no other way to capture as high a degree of each human's overall potential than to encourage them to boundlessly explore the, the limits of their capacity to think. So just uh, off that, I know you just mentioned that Polish study there of the soldiers. I have heard, though, when it gets to nearly the higher units, so like the Navy SEALs. Of course. That now you're not... That, 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 that they are actually very high on an intellectual level and very much so into promoting critical thinking. Yes. So, so, so I suppose it's context of what level the soldiers are, but I mean, that does make sense that the, the modern soldiers, it's kind of like, you know, they're just the Goldilocks. They don't think too much, but they're not so dumb that they're going to blow up something either. That's so, precisely correct. And, and the analogy exists across domains. So if the foot soldier is equivalent to the manual laborer yeah, yeah, I get th you. Th th then the special operations individual is now manager. is now some part of higher level management yeah. in which case these these different contexts apply again th there there is a there is a truth observationally to the way this exists morally ethically it could be debated until the ad infinitum so that's that is important to to recognize if, if we circle back though to the something that I say to clients regarding this concept of critical thinking and why it is in everyone's interest to advance their capacity to do so although clearly this would be argued by certain facets of the military and other vertical hierarchies who do not want to have the ongoing advancement of critical thinking from individuals who could potentially question authority so th that population accepted Something that I'll say to various clients is in order to assume an objective mindset, this is a concept that I borrowed from neuroscientist Sam Harris, the, the phrase court of intellectual honesty. Mm. So if one chooses to envisage a court of intellectual honesty, 
in which cases are won and lost on the basis of intellectual competence. Now let's pose the question to anyone, which is to say, in this court of intellectual honesty, how do you appeal to the court? How do you explain yourself to the court when asked the question, yes or no? Does it behoove you to advance your capacity to critically think? In that context, in this court of intellectual honesty, there is no other way to answer and to appeal to the court than to say, yes, it behooves me to advance my capacity to critically think. And because we've established that truth, we can now reference back to actual life. So as much as one may want to objectively preserve this mindset of the court of intellectual honesty, now we're back in the real world and we're doing what we do professionally, understanding this immutable truth that it serves me to advance my capacity to think critically. And again, in answering the question, how does one do that? In my judgment, invariably, one has to have some working understanding of epistemology. We can make this. We can make that next one's podcast. We wanted like how to critically think. The well, and I would I would have to offer that that is a highly multi-faceted process, similar to the way we say. I meant I meant we meant we spoke about it in another podcast. The in some context, the nonsense of even the notion of school for a child because of the multitude of ways each in, young person learns. I actually had that in my notes there, like, as in, uh, like, you know, first thinking how and then school system, you know, so that was, I actually have an hour saying next show. Yes, so that that would have to be accounted for and that I would be quite hesitant to offer some sort of set of instructions in terms of how, because that could very easily constrain the the reality that many type many individuals think differently, and the very process. We, let's 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 face it; it begins with physics. If we're to describe the electrochemical yeah. nature of yeah. neurotransmitted signals within the brain, on one end. There is there is no more fundamental explanation of this than physics. First all principles, way, baby. First principles. That, that's right. All, all the way on the other end, when we at the other end of that spectrum of neurobiology, in which case we are talking about these highly complicated subjects. By comparison, that in this particular reference frame, there's still very little understanding of, for example, yeah. in, in comparison to the physics side of it. So, because the it this is for example why i've been critical against the concepts of curriculum and the concepts of mentoring as they are actually executed in most circumstances because it is there is such a fine line between the encouragement of open ended knowledge creation and constraining the way that an individual learns due to pre-existing biases and prejudices yeah. that in some sense many individuals are unaware that they even have. Yeah. 
And uh, the result of this is that I am a stout supporter of concept-based educational practice, hence the way that I operate as a consultant and the culture that I've written up on the conclave on my website, in which case I avoid at all opportunity the the concept of even introducing a set of constraints that may in one way, shape, or form convey a prejudice or a bias to an individual as it regards their own understanding. So as it regards critical thinking, I would be very hesitant to introduce any type of procedure in terms of a how-to in favor of simply having a discussion about knowledge creation, epistemology, logic, reason, explanation, perspective, objectivity, the simple discussion about the truths that are uncontroversially recognized about these subject matter domains thereby allows any individual to make sense of them in ways that suit their mode of thinking. And in my judgment, that is the most effective route. So I'm going to wrap up here. Um, just a few, a few things I just want to say here. So, just going off the with, with that whole discussion, initiate with my question on the minority be the majority. And no one I made here was there's nearly going to be almost a paradox in that because we're in a scientific revolution, you're, you're probably actually going to raise the critical thinking in a lot of people that wouldn't have had the opportunity to raise their critical thinking skills before they, we had such access to science. But at the same time, you're probably actually going to widen the gap between the minority and majority, as in the majority just like not want to know knowledge, they just want to know if something works and not understand a deeper knowledge because science is making our life so much easier. So the, the, the kind of, you know, paradoxically, there's almost a, the gap's getting bigger, even though we're probably getting a bigger attachment of critical thinkers, we're probably even making that pool of the majority who don't want to critically think or, or just can't even, aren't, aren't even aware that they can critically think even bigger. So it's just a bit of a paradox in my, in, in, that just came to my mind. I agree. Second thing is that, like, at the same time, we're, it's probably is a fruitless endeavor. And, and I know that this isn't what you're trying to say. It's a fruitless endeavor to try and get every single human being to the same level of critical thinking. Just like it will be to try and get everyone to run 9.58 like Bolton 100 meters. You know, it's not going to happen. Because I always go back to Alan Watts. Alan Watts had a great saying. He goes, if everyone is somebody, then nobody's anybody. So... How would you know what true talent was if you didn't have something that was less talented against it? So, like, how would you know a great guitarist if you didn't know a lousy guitarist or a great singer versus someone who can sing? Yeah, that kind of way. But that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that we can all raise everyone's individual level or we can get people as close to their genetic potential on any one of their domains, be that intellectually or if it was like a physical capacity or in a sports-specific skill. Um, and then... I think the last thing then is, oh yes, uh, just going off critical thinking, where would you see, I know you said you don't really want to give, like, a, you know, and, I'm, and I'm paraphrasing here, that you basically want to give a procedure, but I suppose what you're trying to say is you don't want to give like a cookie-cutter approach or some type of cookbook approach, but there surely is some type of like skill set, and what comes to my mind is like Richard Fryman's baloney kit type thing, would that be <laughs> so, would that be, oh, I like the laugh, oh Jesus, yeah. 
just just now we've five minutes here, so we can get into this in the next podcast because that was a real like that's an hour conversation right there. But that's right. Would would something like is there anything like that or just you take that away there because I'm not you're dying to get in on that. My well, my answer is no because the as as soon as we begin to think procedurally invariably a constraint has been introduced okay and while i'm there, not re- is there any way that we can get around that or is that always going to be the paradox of a bubble we're going to live in because it goes back to this thing where one example i'll give to you that might make my point here a little more articulated better so you understand me better is the idea of confirmation biases and it's like how do i know that i'm not how do i know that like like so like we're, we're trying to say like i don't want to conf- i want to try and be as objective as possible but how do you know you're being objective as possible? I mean, how do you know that what's even the belief in your head is really still even yours? Like, so it's almost like, oh, I don't know. So the answer to that question lies in deepening one's understanding of these various fields. So how deeply does one understand, for instance, the, the definitions of these terms, and even more importantly, how they are practically used in some scientific or philosophical context? Mm. The... The reason why I think it's important important to avoid constraints despite the clear popularity of constraints, which is why no matter the subject domain, people on a broad I'm, – I'm, I'm using a generalization here based upon a stereotype – on a broad scale, people tend to just want to know how to do it. Just tell me how to do it. Yeah, I'm, yeah, not, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not interested in why this works, just – Tell me how to do it. And obviously there's a utility. That's the reason why this is very popular in the broad sense. However, the, the mode of increasing the utility of how to do it is much different than the mode of increasing knowledge of why things work Mm. and this is context specific because there is a situation in which it doesn't matter why something works or not it's a matter of getting it to work and i'm not talking about that context i'm talking about the significance of why which invariably includes mechanistic understandings and first principles and emergent and uh, the whole spectrum of knowledge and epistemological foundations. And same as I have indicated to individuals over the year, and, and even you'll recall some of the emails that you and I shared some time ago where I indicated how it's understandable why individuals want to get, say, a book recommendation or an author recommendation mm-hmm. or a, a reading list and you sort of fill in the blank with you, you take an individual whose type of thinking appeals to you and you're interested in what did that individual what were their resources that they utilized? And you will, you will call how I indicated to you in this regard that 
the very being of any individual is a product of cultural influences, only one of which is the concept of books that they've read. And in in effect, think of the nature of a book as extraordinarily valuable as books are. Weigh the difference between, let's say, a field of research and a single book related to that field. Invariably, the book represents a much higher degree of constraint because invariably the book is a summation of some much broader realm of information. And there, therefore, I, if it's one or the other, will always point someone towards a field of research in favor of a book because invariably, and I myself have written a few books, and I'll admit this about my own, a single book... But you, always, you always preface this within your book, so this kind of goes back to that, like, you know, Catch-22. is like, yeah, but at, at, least, at least you try to articulate this. Yeah, it's, it's circular. I admit it, that in the one hand, of course, I'm interested in selling more books. By the same token, I must admit the very fact that I, I, I the same as anyone else that who has written a book has invariably, if by no other means than the constraint of there's so many page, pages and therefore a finite amount of room to contain a certain amount of information and the way to convey it, it invariably is a constraint. And so the coming back to the question of, you know, how might a listener go about this? Instead of seeking for some procedure, it would, would be my recommendation to simply explore the subject matter. Mm. So that must be my way of answering the question, how to. If you want to know how to, you open up the electronic device that gives you access to the internet and you, you get on your preferred search engine and you begin exploring the research NCBI as a function of PubMed, PLOS One. There's various research databases that have vast amounts of research in any number of domains. And then we come back to each individual's capacity to cipher the research, to assimilate it and make sense of it. And ultimately that brings us back to knowledge in that domain is defined by epistemology. Yeah. James Smith, we're going to leave it there for today. Um, I definitely think for the next podcast, maybe a little more, I, I'd still, um, I would still like to discuss more about, you know, how to, how to critically think. Now we've really gotten into what it is, why it's important. We spoke a little bit on the how to, but I, I, and like, I, I know like even getting into that topic for the next podcast, you know, it, it is a, it is a large topic and, and one that, is going to take a lot of critical. <laughs> it's going to take a lot of critical thinking, uh, you know, on the subject of critical thinking. But even just thinking of things like the education system, you know, all the way from the experiences and epigenetical factors on us from being embryos to the environmental factors and experience we have from our childhood, up through like our the schooling system from childhood, up to basically every experience we've had since they were born, all those factors. The other thing I just made a note here too, and maybe this could be potentially the the following podcast, and it's it really rang home to me because 
because of that email exchange we had, and I had a, another email exchange with another coach who, who I'll tell you about offline, and he said the exact same thing you said in terms of mentoring now. He was much of, I would rather not be seen as a mentor. I would rather, he, he nearly saw it as an antithesis, an, an, an antithesis, if I'm saying that word right, to be a mentor because he's like, I'd only subconsciously put biases onto you. And he says, that's not what mentoring really should be about. It should be a facilitation of you as an individual. So he's more about, again, promoting critical thinking in you as an individual, kind of similar to yourself and the way you kind of articulate the way through, you know, gathering information instead of just reading a book and um, because you think this person aligns you rather than sort of realizing that, like, if you critically think for yourself, the answers will come to you. Like, there are, you have all the necessary, necessary, necessary skills within you to get the answers you want. It's just having the actual confidence and self-reliance to actually believe that you have the mastery of that. Again, if you go back to understanding first principles, um, that, you know, it's really there. And again, it just goes back to being able to, we spoke earlier on about, like, why critical thinking is so difficult to the brain. And it's just, it's basically, I think, why we start to outsource our learning, like, oh, a mentor or a book or DVD, is because it's a, it's a procrastination thing. It's like, hold on, if you just went back, studied first principles of certain systems, and then really start to critically think about this, like, really give it a critical think, you would probably make some special shit happen. And I suppose if you do look at all those great people like the Einsteins and all these great people, like the Newtons who discovered all that shit, they just, like, it was, like, this again goes back to the great, the, the late gratification, like, like Einstein's relativity was fucking a decade or more in the workings, you know, same with Newton and his stuff and anything that was ever worthwhile. Like, it took such a long time for that knowledge to come to fruition and become something tangible within creation. But, so I think for our next show, definitely, I'd like to talk more about how, how do you think, and, and I know it's, you might be too comfortable coming up with, like, again, what may be seen as a cookie cutter or, but again, it's a good stimulating thought process. Well, and, you know, okay, we, we've spoken about the problem. Let's let's see if we can come up with some type of solution. And then in terms, I'd love to maybe talk about this mentoring idea and then your thoughts on that and the accumulation then maybe of of getting knowledge through external sources and realizing that that mightn't be the best way to actually come to mastery of information for, for oneself. Um, and that's pretty much it. Uh, one thing I'd like to leave you thinking about is we've spoken about constraints I would pose a question to you, if you could maybe give a brief answer. Do you not think, though, that sometimes constraints can lead to better creativity? Do you not think that too much opportunity could actually diminish creativity? I agree with you that if for no other reason than a mode of logistical efficiency, constraints can offer direction, similarly to how in the last podcast when I was explaining to you in the mode of psychological preparation, we can think of what is constrained or not by the laws of physics simply as a mode of offering logistical efficiency very, very to, this, very to the set of set of possibilities. So I agree with you. Yeah, very good. Uh, that's very, uh, I like that. I like that. That made a light bulb go off there once again. Just for the listeners, the amount of times I email James or have a discussion, I'm just like, I'm such a dumb fuck. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I email them and I get the answer back. I'm like, he must be like, what is what, what does that guy be thinking about? But I'm like that. Like I, I will ask the dumbest questions, and then like and then like when I get the like it's just it's just the way I learn. Like I'll ask dumb questions, and then it's like oh yes, like, I actually would have known that if I thought a more deeper. But uh, but uh, I'm always very enlightened. As as I say in those emails, you make me smile. This makes me happy to to, to know that I'm learning. 
James, thanks. I'm glad so, to hear that. Yeah, thanks so much for today. Uh, excellent as always. And um, so for the listeners, guys, we will have James back on. And if I'm sure, if anyone wants us maybe to delve into a particular topic, you're more than welcome to contact me or even James. And um, I'll have all James's information in the show notes. Just again, James, just shout out your website there again. Globalsportconcepts.net. Perfect. And so, guys, for now, take care, be well, and as I always say at the end of every podcast, stay strong. Thank you.